0: Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. As always, Nina and I were torn over what to call today's episode. When we started putting it together, Nina named it Johnny Maderano's Hit Parade. Yes, most, but not all of the murders we're discussing today were Maderano's handiwork, but he was also very busy outside of the time frame that we're covering today, so I overruled her. Well, so much for this being a democratic process over here. What are we going to do, vote or something? There's only two of us. We'll end up with a Mexican standoff. I have seniority, so that's the end of the story.
1: All you old goats not wanting to give up control is part of the problem and why we're in this jackpot right now.
0: Bitter, bitter millennial.
1: Well, you're raining on my parade over here. Since this is a hit parade episode, it's going to be long and very detailed. The years we'll be focusing on are 1970 to 1973, except for the 1974 murder of Al Notterangeli. But I do want to quickly go back to 1965 just to set the scene for what was coming up in the next decade. We just can't seem to get out of the 1960s. That's because what happened in the 60s gang wars informs just about everything that took place in the Boston underworld for the next four decades. I know people want to move on, but I don't think you can properly understand what happened with Winter Hill without that context.
0: I agree with you, and our younger listeners who didn't live through those days might not realize how the more recent events of the late 80s and 90s and beyond are all linked back to those earlier happenings.
1: Exactly. We should also note that we will be covering Joe Barbosa's activities while under federal protection during this same time frame in the next episode. Now, with that out of the way, let's get started. Some of you might recall that Johnny Matarano was arrested with Jimmy Fleming in November of 65. Jimmy had been on the lam since early September of that year when he jumped bail and failed to appear in court after he attacked John Cutliffe in late August. On January 26th, the
0: following year, Jimmy appeared in court. The court psychiatrist testified that Jimmy's memory was impaired because of the tremendous pressures of hiding from his enemies. Jimmy was deemed incompetent but Judge Toro, who ruled that he could not be tried on the Cutliff assault charge.
1: Instead, Jimmy was sent to Bridgewater for 30 days of observation. Stress. It was all the dope he'd done and whatever hell went on in his house when he was a kid.
0: No question about either of those two things.
1: Jimmy and Johnny pled guilty and were finally sentenced in March. Johnny got six months for harboring a fugitive, but was credited with time served and was back out on the street later that month. Jimmy got four to six years at Walpole for jumping bail. He was released on March 28, 1969.
0: On June 30, at that same year, a 302 was submitted by FBI Special Agent Joseph Riley. The FBI began surveilling their former top echelon informant, Jimmy Fleming, earlier that month because Jimmy had gone back to his old friends and his old routines. Note, he was cut from the informant program, not because he was running around killing people, but because he jumped bail in the case that Nina just mentioned. Now who were his old friends? Johnny Motorano, Frankie Salemi, and Steve Busius, to name
1: a few. The BPD had been monitoring Jimmy's associates and their activities pretty much from the moment he had been released from Walpole. Detective Ed Walsh noted that he had seen Flemmy at Suffolk Downs, and he had heard that Jimmy was operating an after-hours club above the Manor Cafe at 553 Dudley Street, which, if I'm not mistaken, had been owned by Walter Bennett, although we should note that Walter had been dead for two years at this point. Flemmy was also frequenting Enrico's Lounge on Grange Street in Hyde Park and the Bat Cove on Friend Street in North Station. Walsh informed the feds that Jimmy, Busius, and Frankie had been scooped up in early May after what he called a disturbance at the party lounge, but the cops had been forced to release the three men when no charges were brought against them.
0: Ed Walsh and his team continued to trail Jimmy Fleming and the boys throughout the summer and fall of 69. On September 25th, the body of John Bano was discovered in an empty parking lot behind 65 Berkeley Street. He'd been stabbed to death. Johnny would later claim Bano as one of his victims, though he never was charged with that murder.
1: But the stabbing M.O. makes me think it was actually Jimmy, and Johnny was still protecting him two decades after Jimmy's death or he was protecting his own street cred. The story he told about why he killed Bono sounds totally bogus, some beef at the sugar shack.
0: I doubt Maturano was going to ring us up and set the record straight.
1: Well, how can he? He's told like three different versions of events.
0: Well, you know. Anyhow, in November of 1969, Ed Walsh reported to the feds that Fleming stayed put in his apartment during the day and at approximately 11.30 p.m., he would go to the Pond Cafe in JP where he'd meet Johnny Maturano. After having a few drinks, the two men would leave and go into Boston. Since Jimmy's driver's license had been revoked, Johnny Mutterano always drove. Once in town, they'd go either to the attic lounge, the living room, or the downtown lounge and meet up with Billy Bolero, Jesse Tortorici, Nicky Famia, Sonny Colantino, and a former BPD officer, John
1: Jack Azalive. The BPD also noted that Jimmy seemed to have a lot of money after his visits to the clubs. They suspected that Jimmy was picking up Shylock money for his brother, Stevie, who was still on the lam. On December 13th, Jimmy stabbed the Pacino brothers, Lawrence and Leonard, at their club. Supposedly, the Pacinos were arguing with a friend of Jimmy's named Daggett, and Jimmy got involved. But Detective Walsh stated that he believed that Jimmy was shaking down the Pacinos, and that was the real reason he was in the Pacinos' club.
0: I want to give a little bit more on Billy Daggett since he'll be reappearing later this season when we cover Stevie's demise. Daggett was living in Dorchester as a teenager when he enlisted in the Marines at the age of 18, but he went AWOL. He and one of his corps mates from Roxbury went on a robbery spree, including a $1,900 payroll heist, before renting a room at the Statler Hotel and blowing all of the money. He was shipped off to Concord in 1957 and released in 59, only to get sent up again for five years for stabbing a kid in Dorchester. In May of 61, he was charged and tried for killing Joseph Francione's partner, Frederick Torella, while they were both locked up in Walpole. Daggett claimed self-defense, stating that Torella attacked him with a bat in the prison yard.
1: Yeah, I still think Jimmy was involved in that murder. He was also locked up at Walpole at the same time and had killed Raymond Gabriel just a few months earlier. Daggett, Jimmy, and two other men were indicted in June on murder charges. Jimmy Jimmy would eventually be acquitted of the Gabriel murder in March of 62.
0: And Daggett was acquitted in late 1961 and sent back to Concord to wrap up his bid. From the time of his release the following year up until his death in 1981, there were no further charges, but he and Stevie Flemmy were partners in the Geneva Cafe in Dorchester. Isn't that where Stevie put Deborah Hussey to work? Yep. And she was only 17. Okay. Back to the surveillance of Jimmy on December 16th, Walsh decided it was time to inform the feds that his team was working with the secret service and that they might be able to offer more information. Three days later, the secret service agent working the case was contacted by the feds. He told them that his original goal in monitoring Flemmi was to get him on a firearms violation, but instead he'd found out that Flemmi was pushing phony money and the secret service was trying to build a case against him. As shocking as this may be for our listeners, Flemmy had another brawl that same evening, this time in a car on Huntington Ave in Jamaica Plain. Fleming accused Black Jimmy Aboud of being an informant for the task force
1: investigating the counterfeit money. Jimmy was probably jealous that he was no longer a prized informant.
0: Oh, I'm sure. I'm also sure that Jimmy was no stranger to the Secret Service. You remember the American Express Travelers check, counterfeiting ring that Jimmy inserted himself into.
1: Billy Stewart dragged Jimmy to testify in front of a grand jury in New York in late 1964 about that case. Speaking of testimony, Abood later testified that he and Jimmy were passengers in a car driven by a third unnamed man, presumably Johnny. He said Jimmy had tugged at his belt, reached into his coat pocket, and cocked his pistol. Hearing the click, Abood jumped on Jimmy to gain control of the gun. Jimmy got shot in the shoulder in the struggle, but he managed to bite Abood's hand.
0: So Flemmie of him. Jimmy was indicted on January 8th and entered an innocent plea. Assistant District Attorney Zalkin asked for bail to be set at $100,000. Joe Bolero, Jimmy's attorney, countered with $5,000 bail. They compromised on 25K, which was promptly posted. Jimmy's latest arrest didn't put a damper on his activities. His routine didn't change, and he appeared to still be collecting money for Stevie, including weekly collection trips to joints owned by Louis Venios, an old associate of Frank Smith's.
1: Jimmy appeared in court with his attorney, Joe Valero on March 16th for the first day of his trial in the Jimmy Abood case, but he disappeared after leaving the courthouse on March 19th and went on the run. Now, two Flemmies were fugitives. The jury returned a guilty verdict the following day, despite Bolero's objections to a verdict in absentia. But Jimmy was not sentenced at that time.
0: Now, with the knowledge that Jimmy and Stevie Fleming, Johnny Matarano, and even Joe Barboza were roaming about freely, let's begin with our murder victims. On February 6, 1970, Louis the Fox Tallianetti was gunned down along with his girlfriend outside of her apartment. We won't cover Louis's background here, just the most recent events before his slaying. For more about his early days, listen to La Casa Nostra. In 1968, Louis Taglianetti was charged with the murder of Jackie Nazarian seven years after Jackie was killed. Rudy Schiara was tried in 1963 and cleared, and the late William Maffea was charged, but the authorities were unable to obtain an indictment. Previously, Louis the Fox had been convicted by the feds on income tax evasion charges. That trial brought the wiretapes of the Coinomatic into the public eye. For the first time, the average citizen got a look into Raymond Patriarca's world. And what a world it was. Indeed.
1: (laughs) The latest trial against Louis the Fox was scheduled to begin when he was gunned down as he left his girlfriend's apartment in Cranston, Rhode Island at 10 p.m. on Friday, February 6th. At least two men fired a pump-action 16-gauge shotgun and a 38 caliber pistol at him. A roll of cash totaling $1,143 was found in his shirt pocket and a silver medal of St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes, was found in his other pocket. No one was ever charged with Louis's murder, but the description of the hit sounds like J.R. Russo to me. As for the timing, it might have been related to his own upcoming trial, but the first Maffeo Malay murder trial was also set to begin just a week and a half later. Maybe Raymond and Jerry were afraid Louis would try to make a deal.
0: I agree that it is highly likely, likely that JR killed the fox at Raymond's behest. There were too many headaches to take the risk of Louis getting on the stand and going bad. Five days after the fox was killed, longtime ally of the late Buddy McLean, Tommy Ballou, was gunned down near the Bunker Hill Monument in Charlestown. The 39 year old longshoreman had been shot three times in the head and once in the shoulder. A marriage license was found in his pocket. His friends said that he was to be married the following week. An empty 30 caliber Smith & Wesson pistol was discovered about 50 yards from his body. The neighbors reported hearing what they thought was a car backfiring between 2 and 3 that morning. The news of Tommy's slaying spread like wildfire. The people who knew him told the cops that Tommy had more friends than enemies.
1: But Tommy had a lengthy record. His most recent offense had taken place in 1965 when he was stopped and frisked outside of the funeral home where Buddy McLean was being waked. Tommy had an unlicensed firearm and of course was arrested. In 1966, he was sentenced to four to five years in prison, but was released two and a half years later.
0: Blue's record went back to the 1950s. Another case we've discussed in two other episodes was the murder of Philip Goldstein, a local bookie in May of 1959. Goldstein was killed just before he was due to testify against Tommy in the attempted robbery case that had been pending since 1958. Goldstein himself had been arrested in the same case because he failed to appear in court.
1: But Tommy's real claim to fame was that he had helped Tommy Callahan harbor two of the Brinks thieves, Sandy Richardson and James Beharity, in 1956. For more on that story, listen to our episode about the early days of Boston's FBI office.
0: Like so many of the other murders we've covered, no one was ever tried for Baloo's slaying, nor was a clear motive ever uncovered. One rumor was that supposedly Baloo was one of only a few people that knew that Alan Fiddler, aka Suitcase, and Harry Johnson were out in California looking for Barboza in order to kill him. No
1: teasers. We'll get into that next week. Okay,
0: okay. Before we move on, let's cover a few events that happened following Tommy's
1: murder. In April of 1970, the Boston Police released their most wanted list, but instead of the top 10, it was the top 6, and the lucky winners were Stevie Flemmy, Frankie Salemi, James Michael Murphy, Phil Cresta, Steve Ruckus, and Melo Merlino. Jimmy Flemmy was also still on the lam, though he didn't make the list. The following month, the convictions were upheld in the Teddy Deegan murder case. We'll get deeper into that, along with what else Barboza was up to next week. On July 13th, 1970, the body of Richard Doyle was discovered in Peabody. He had been killed gangland style, shot several times in the head and neck.
0: Now, here's the interesting thing about Doyle. He had been arrested for passing stolen money orders that were taken from Logan Airport. He was killed after he posted bail. Two weeks later, two men and two women from East Boston were arrested. Fast forward to September of 1992 and the murder of Susan Taraskowitz, another tragedy. Taraskowitz stumbled upon the credit card and money order theft ring that was being run out of the airport where she worked. The ring was being run out of East Boston, allegedly by the Rosettis. Early next season, we'll have an episode dedicated to Susan and her theories, including at least one other death that we believe might also be linked. Both Doyle and Taraskowitz's murders remain unsolved.
1: The next homicide was on August 24th, 1970. George Cochran's body was found dumped in Revere with three bullets in his head. Patrick Bedard and Arthur Fano were arrested the following month. Supposedly, they were associates and had a falling out over profits from their illicit activities. Later that year, both men were convicted and sentenced to 18 to 20 years. Three years later, Arthur went AWOL during one of his furloughs. That whole furlough thing in your state seemed ill-fated from day one.
0: Well, that's an episode in itself. Before we wrap up 1970, let's discuss Spike O'Toole's brawl with a former Boston cop named Robert Noonan. Spike shot him in the chest, arm and face on Dot Ab at about 2.30 in the morning on August 27th. The cop said the fight started over a dog.
1: Spike was arrested on September 2nd and indicted on the 4th. Bail was set at $25,000 cash, but Spike was unable to post it and was shipped off to Charles Street. Noonan refused to cooperate with the cops, but Spike was still put away and was off the streets for the next three years. We'll get back to Spike at the end of the episode. Meanwhile, the following month, Jimmy Flemmy was arrested by the feds in the Stadies in a trailer camp near Westover Air Force Base in Chicopee, Mass. You'll recall from earlier in this episode that Jimmy had disappeared in March in the middle of his trial. There will be much more to come of Jimmy throughout this season, of course.
0: 1971 saw 99 homicides in the state of Massachusetts, but it appears that only one of them was organized crime related. On February 18th, 1971, ex-con Joseph Brazil was found shot in the head on the sidewalk at 61 Monument Street, just blocks away from where Tommy Ballou had been killed one year earlier. Brazil was still alive, but he was pronounced dead on arrival at Massachusetts General. He had a 32 caliber revolver in his pocket, but never got a chance to fire back at his assailants. This was not the first time Brazil had been shot at in this location. He was involved in a shootout 11 years earlier and was arrested on weapons charges since he had been carrying two revolvers
1: and an automatic pistol and 100 rounds of ammo. And that wasn't the only pinch Brazil took. Let's talk about his lengthy record that dated back to 1947 when he was picked up along with Ronnie Dermody as part of a gang committing B&Es in Cambridge. He was serving his five-year sentence in Concord Reformatory when he briefly escaped with another boy in July of 1950, but the pair didn't make it far and were captured roughly three hours later. The following April, he was stabbed by another prisoner named John Perry. The next month, Brazil pleaded guilty to charges of assault with intent to murder and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. He had allegedly stabbed Perry four times because Perry had ruined his escape attempt by turning over a hacksaw blade to a prison guard
0: geniuses brazil was sentenced to nine to twelve years for the intent to murder and eight to ten on the assault charge both concurrent in a state prison 18 months later he was involved in another knife fight this time with a couple of other men who will be familiar to our longtime listeners louis aquella and george ash ash was the only one who got away unscathed in september of 53 april made another failed bid for freedom with joe flaherty and three other men they took two prison guards hostage but they soon surrendered Surrounded in the pr- police, uh, in the prison <laughs> underwear shop and surrendered without incident. Sorry about that, guys. On uh, the underwear shop. Underwear. or Who has an underwear shop inside the jail? I mean, that got me tongue-tied. Oh, it's Massachusetts.
1: Oh, it's true. In April 1960, Brazil was arrested for the attempted robbery of the Hillside Cambridge Bank in Medford. He was allegedly one of the lookouts in a 13-man team, which included Rico Sacramone, Anthony Sacramone's cousin. Alfarizzi represented Brazil at the arraignment and protested the high bail of $100,000 saying, quote, this is nothing but a police publicity stunt, unquote, to which the judge replied that he thought that the bail had been set too low. The gang was suspected of committing at least three other recent bank robberies in the West End, Medford and Somerville.
0: Brazil was found guilty of armed robbery the following November. At the sentencing, the judge stated that he believed that Brazil was the mastermind of the armed robbery crew and gave him 10 to 12 years to be served after he finished an earlier sentence at Walpole. In January next year, Brazil's wife was arraigned on charges stemming from the January 1960 robbery of the Somerset Savings Bank in Somerville. She pleaded guilty two months later and was given a suspended sentence to the women's reformatory and three years probation for being an accessory before the fact. She had dyed her husband's hair and put makeup on his face to disguise his appearance. Brazil was finally paroled in December 1970 and was murdered just two months later.
1: We need to jump ahead here to finish the story about Brazil and who killed him. In April of 1973, Rico Sacramoni was picked up by a local trooper in Lowell. Rico had been badly beaten and must have had a concussion because he'd been walking along the side of the road in a daze. The trooper reported that he thought at first that Rico had been the victim of a hit and run. But when Sacramoni regained consciousness at the hospital, he blurted out that he had been beaten up because he'd murdered his former partner, Brazil.
0: Why he murdered Brazil is unclear. The charges against sacrimony for the April 1960 Medford job had eventually been dropped, though Rico was later convicted of another robbery that he'd committed in Medford in August of 59. He was released on parole in October 1964, but found himself behind bars again after being shot during the assassination of Buddy McLean the following year. Rico was charged with Brazil's murder, but never brought to trial. Instead, Sacramone's body was found face down in a marsh in Saugus less than two years later. His feet were bound with wire, and he had been executed with a single bullet in his right temple. His murder was never solved.
1: Okay, now back to our timeline. On May 13th, 1972, the leader of the Mullen gang, Donald Colleen, was shot in the face with a 45 caliber rising machine gun, submachine gun. A total of 15 rounds were fired at him in the driveway of his Framingham home at 9 p.m. It was Donald's son Gregory's fourth birthday. Colleen had received a phone call and told his family that he had to step out. He never even had a chance to reach for his gun. The Framingham police recovered face masks and leather gloves near Colleen's home along with the machine gun the following day. Donald was not the only Colleen brother to be murdered. In 1950, George was shot to death in the North End. Another unsolved homicide added to the list. Edward was found shot to death in 1968, but his death was listed as a suicide.
0: And do you believe it was
1: suicide? Come on. You know there's a 99% chance he was killed and the authorities didn't want to bother to investigate if they didn't have to.
0: No argument for me.
1: Donald Colleen's driver and bodyguard was none other than James Whitey Bulger. At the time of his murder, Colleen was the owner of the Transit Cafe located on Broadway in South Boston. Following his death, Whitey took over the bar. The rumor for decades
0: was that Whitey was responsible for Donald Colleen's death, but Patrick Knee claimed that the killer was actually another member of Colleen's gang, Jimmy Mattville. No one was ever charged in Colleen's assassination. There was one more brother, Kenneth. Kenneth's claim to fame was that he had chewed off the nose of Mickey Dwyer, brother-in-law of former BPD Commissioner Mickey Roach. Kenneth wrapped it in a napkin and sent it by taxi to the Boston City Hospital. It appears that doctors were able to reattach it. Kenneth later said that he was out jogging in City Point in the summer of 72 when he passed a car with four men in it. They delivered him a message. It's over. You're out of business. No further warnings.
1: In September of that year, shotgun blasts rang out at his Marine Road home. Luckily, no one was injured. Kenneth spread the word on the street that he was retiring from the bookmaking business. He even set a date of September 29th as the last day he would take any action. DA Garrett Byrne floated the rumor that Howie Winter would be the likely candidate to fill the void created by Colleen stepping down, which just makes it sound like Garrett Byrne was giving Howie his vote of confidence. Well, you know, these things happen.
0: Meanwhile, loan shark Paul Foligno went missing on September 1st. Foligno had been borrowing money at a rate of 1% from the Angulos, then lending it out at a 5% interest rate. His body was found in a shallow grave in Boxford the week of Kenneth's retirement. Michael Polici was given Felino's territory by Jerry Angelo after Fellino was killed. After Polici was arrested, convicted, and shipped off to the pen in Atlanta, Slim Cazonas took it over, but his profit earning was cut short by his own arrest. We'll get into the loan shark and bookmaking operations in a few episodes. Not to sound like a broken record here, but no one was ever charged in Fellino's slaying.
1: It's Boston. It's normal. I think we've solved more murders over the last year and a half doing this podcast than the authorities have in seven decades.
0: Well, don't say that too loud because the authorities might get angry at us, but nobody will listen to us.
1: Well, at least we're trying. The next murder took place at 2.30 a.m. on March 8, 1973. Michael Milano, Louis LaPiana, and Diana Sussman were stopped at a traffic light on the corner of Sparhawk and Market Streets in Brighton when another vehicle pulled alongside them and opened fire with 45 caliber pistols. Both men were seriously injured, with Milano succumbing to his wounds a few hours later. LaPiana was left paralyzed from the neck down. Sussman escaped with a non-life-threatening wound.
0: Now, for the even more tragic part, it was a case of mistaken identity. The two men were bartenders at Mother's in the North End, which was co owned by Indian Al Notarangeli. Milano had recently purchased a Mercedes Benz, albeit a used one, because Indian Al drove one just like it. Milano had a fascination with Notarangeli right down to growing his hair out to look just like Al. 26 years later, Johnny Monterano copped to the botched assassination in that fucking pedantic manners of his that makes my blood boil. I can just hear it now. Yeah, so I killed him by accident.
1: At least Frankie feigned an appropriate emotional response when recounting his atrocities. Uh, Lapiana
0: Lapiana issued a statement after Maturano confessed, I don't know why I'm alive, but I am. My future was taken away from me, but I got over being bitter about my injury. I'm enjoying
1: life. This never stopped me. That poor man. Now, Indian Al and another guy were believed to have been the ones who killed Polly Felino, who we just discussed a short while ago. So that was the likely motive for the attempted hit. Al had been racking up enemies left and right but Johnny got the wrong guy. We'll get into Al's murder in a bit but let first let's cover the murder of Al Plummer on March 20th, 1973.
0: The press version of events was that Al Plummer was driving Hugh Sonny Shields and Frank Capizzi when they were hit with a hail of bullets. Eight bullets from a submachine gun hit the car, killing Plummer and injuring Shields and Capizzi. Sonny was shot in the back and taken to Mass General Hospital. Capizzi was hit in the thigh and taken to Winthrop Community Hospital. He was placed under arrest for illegal possession of a firearm that the cops found in the shot up
1: car. Capizzi would testify in 2013 during Whitey Bulger's trial about that night, quote, I had been hit in the head and felt warm blood running down my neck. 100 bullets hit the car, and I had about 30 wounds from glass, metal, and bullets. One slug came to rest millimeters from my heart.
0: And that's why Capizzi testified that he heard Sicilian even when people spoke English to him.
1: You just had to bring that up.
0: I couldn't resist.
1: Whitey's attorney questioned Capizzi about Indian Al. Capizzi stated that he was friends with Indian Al and but when a, the attorney asked, how did Al make a living? Capizzi snapped, ask Al.
0: Now the who, what, when, and why, as we mentioned earlier, Jerry and Julo wanted Indian Al dead because he killed Felino, amongst other transgressions. According to the story we know, Howie Winter and Johnny Monterano agreed to take care of Al Frangiolo. The first attempt ended with Milano dead and Lapiana crippled for life. Then one night, while Howie and Johnny were tracking down Indian Al, they spotted Notarangeli, Plummer, Shields, and Capizzi coming out of the aquarium on Atlantic Ave. When the quartet left the restaurant, Jimmy
1: Sims, Howie, and Johnny tailed them. The plan was to drive alongside their car and just start blasting. Johnny sure did love his drive-bys. While well, in pursuit, a car cut them off and they had to stop in front of Al's car on Commercial Street near the Coast Guard station. Sims was behind the wheel. Johnny was in the front seat and started shooting out of the back window. As we mentioned before, Plummer was killed. Shields and Capizzi were shot, but managed to get out of the car and took off. Indy and Al was in the front seat, but didn't have a scratch on him and managed to slip away. Johnny later claimed that Whitey
0: was also present at the botched hit in a crash car. There's some question as to how truthful that claim was. There is no doubt that Whitey was a stone cold killer, but it appears that Johnny and Stevie may have inserted Whitey into their stories when he actually wasn't there.
1: Well, we aren't the only ones to question the veracity of those claims. Their timeline is questionable, to say the least, but we'll never know for sure, I guess. Let's move on to the next victim. Just four days after Plummer was killed, William H. O'Brien was murdered on March 24th. Decades later, the newspapers tried to say that this was the same Billy O'Brien who robbed Melrose Trust in November of 55 with Whitey Bulger, but the middle initial is different and the age is 13 years off. How many
0: times have we seen similar mistakes like that?
1: It's as bad as the family trees that people attach the wrong people in records to.
0: (laughs) I can accept it from an amateur genealogist, but it's irritating to me when journos do it. Anyhow, Whitey's Billy O'Brien had already been killed in mid-January 1967. He was found slumped across the front seat of his car on Route 139 near the Randolph Line. The autopsy showed powder burns on his face and six bullet holes on the right side of his head. The window of the driver's side was rolled down, and the window on the passenger side had been shattered by the gunshots leading the police to believe that it had been a two-man job. One man had stopped Billy, and while the distracting him, the other opened fire. That Billy O'Brien hadn't given up his criminal activity since being released. At the time of his murder, he was out on bail after being arrested with Dickie Joyce for robbing the city's service oil company terminal on Quincy Avenue Braintree.
1: Multiple possible motives there and another murder unsolved. There will be more to come from Dickie Joyce later this season. Now back to the second Billy O'Brien. This time, Ralph who who is the passenger in O'Brien's car, was the likely target. And just like in the Milano and Plummer slayings, Johnny Matarano missed his man. <laughs>
0: How did DeMaisi and O'Brien come to be in the same car? Supposedly, O'Brien and DeMaisi had left a meeting with Tommy King, a later victim of Marauderano's, at Linda May's restaurant on Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester to buy guns. The three of them did time together in Walpole. When they left the meet, the duo were heading to deliver a birthday cake for O'Brien's daughter. O'Brien was driving with DeMaisi in the front passenger seat. The hit car pulled beside them and began shooting. Sims was the wheelman. Howie Winter and Maturano were the shooters. O'Brien was dead at the scene. Damazzi was hit eight times, but still managed
1: to get out of the car and chase the hitters on foot. And then he got himself to Boston City Hospital.
0: You know, I admire such savagery.
1: Because you're a savage.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm just a delicate flower. And no, I'm not going to give you a chance to respond to that.
1: Too bad. DeMassi required surgery to remove bullets that had been lodged in his back and arm, but he checked himself out of the hospital the next day. Something else that you would admire.
0: Slap some tape on it and go, baby. And that's what DeMassi did. O'Brien's funeral was held the following week at the Gate of Heaven Church in Southie. He attended and found himself arrested by the BPD's Organized Crime Squad after they found a 38 revolver on him. Ralphie's parole was violated and he was shipped
1: back to Walpole probably ended up saving his life. As usual, there were many versions of the events surrounding the murder of O'Brien and the attempted murder of Damacy. Some said that O'Brien was the target because he was a rat, but most believe that, that Ralphie was the target. He was part of Indian Al's crew and had a reputation for being a dangerous guy. Ralphie had no idea that Winter Hill was killing Al's guys for the mafia.
0: The irony of that, considering Stevie and company were ultimately responsible for bringing down Jerry and the rest of them in the end. The day after O'Brien's murder, Ted Harrington made a statement quote, two underworld factions are obviously involved in a feud and it's frightening because enforcers and heavy weapons are on both sides, unquote. He continued, I don't expect a war as bloody as the gross conflict in Boston during the 60s. Dozens of people were killed then, but it looks like the start of an all-out gang war. I hope people in the underworld in power will do everything to control the factions, but I don't know how it will go. Harrington's pleas fell on deaf ears because just a few days later, another member of the not crew fell victim to Winter Hill. Not in Boston this time,
1: but in Fort Lauderdale where James Leary was in hiding. Jimmy Sims and Joe McDonald drove to Florida to find Leary. Joe Mack tried to sneak up on Leary, but Leary spotted him and threw himself on Joe. As they were brawling on the floor, McDonald got a shot off. Leary tried to escape, but McDonald put five rounds in Leary's head.
0: Two weeks later, on April 18th, Indian Joe Notaranjali, Indian Al's brother, was killed in Medford. A gunman dressed as a construction worker walked into the pewter pot coffee shop where Joe was eating. He fired two shots into Joe and walked out. There was a getaway car with a driver waiting outside. The press was quick to point out the connections between Larry, the Notarangelies, Capizzi, and Plummer. Capizzi and Indian Al had been convicted of
1: firebombing a motel in Vermont back in 69. Although the witnesses said the hitter was dressed as a construction worker with a yellow helmet, Madarano later testified that he was wearing a white meat cutter's coat when he killed Indian Joe. <laughs> Do I need to say these people are all liars?
0: Butcher, construction worker—you know, it's all the same thing. Rabbis,
1: yeah, rabbis. You know, all of those
0: things—all lies.
1: <laughs> well, no one's going to call him out on it except us, I guess. <laughs> A Florida detective also noted at the time of Indian Joe's slaying that the description of Leary's killer and that of the construction worker matched. Do you remember that quote from John, I think it was Jimmy Matarano said it about Joe Mack. Who do you think was doing all the killings for Winter Hill? It was Joe. I was skeptical of that claim initially, but that may turn out to be the most honest thing any of these guys ever said.
0: Oh, I suspect you're correct. By the time Jimmy Spike O'Toole was killed in December of 73, the number of homicides in Boston had surpassed 100. But let's go back a couple of months. On September 25th, just after being released from prison after the altercation with Noonan that we discussed earlier, Spike was shot while getting into his car.
1: As an aside, Robert Dadiego had just been disappeared by the Fed so they could clear Stevie Fleming on the charges against him.
0: Mm -hmm, Exactly. Now back to the attempt on Spike. Two masked men armed with revolvers shot Spike in the left wrist, the left hand, the right and left legs. There's only right and left legs in the legs, pelvis and buttocks. Miraculously, none of O'Toole's vital organs were hit. When the cops went to question him about the attack, Spike
1: gave them the phony name of James Murphy, but otherwise refused to talk. But on December 1st, Spike's luck ran out. At 7.30 p.m., just around the corner from his house in Dorchester, four men in a gold car firing an automatic weapon hit Spike four times in the chest. The gold car reminded me of the reported gold car that had been scouting out the neighborhood around the bus stop where Punchy McLaughlin was murdered. Maybe there was some truth to the story that Howie killed Punchy. I know it wouldn't be
0: the same car, but the theory does remind me of how Jack Kelly preferred to always have a green car involved in any of those things. The other thing that reminds me of Punchy's hit was the construction worker's outfit, which was the same with the hitter used for the Indian Joe hit. And remember how he claimed that he was the one who shot Punchy outside of the Beacons field.
1: Well, you never know. Well, it wasn't the rabbis. It certainly wasn't the rabbis. Well, Eddie Connors, who owned the barroom in Dorchester that Spike used to hang in, claimed publicly for years that he orchestrated the hit on Spike and had given his location to Howie. Connors' big mouth and eventual efforts to make a deal with the feds would cut his life short in 75, but we'll get to that when we cover the hits of 75.
0: Speaking of 1975, when Muterano testified at Whitey's 2013 trial, he admitted under cross-examination that he initially told the state police that Fleming had helped him kill O'Toole and that the killing took place in 75. He said he recanted when he discovered, discovered O'Toole was slain in 1973. Notice he didn't say remembered, he said discovered, like someone had to tell him, and realized Fleming could not have been involved because he was still in the lamb then. Mutterano said they talked about it so much on the phone, he mistakenly thought that Fleming had been there.
1: Well, who's to say that Fleming wasn't back in the area at that point? After all, Frankie had been convicted in the Fitzgerald car bombing case back in June. And like I said earlier, Dottie Echo had already been moved from the area by the feds.
0: I don't buy it. I think that trio were the biggest liars of all of these liars. They told the feds what they wanted to hear to make the best deal they could.
1: Well, no argument here. We're going to wrap up today with Indian Al. We'd planned to end this episode with Spike's murder at the end of '73, but since Indian Al was the catalyst for five of the murders we've covered today, we decided to include his demise. Al's body was found stuffed in the trunk of a stolen car in Charlestown on February 22, 1974. The car had initially been stolen in Dorchester 11 days earlier. It was stolen a second time by two boys who took it out for a joyride. When the cops stopped them and searched the car, there was Al with a bullet in his head. He'd been last seen alive in Winchester the previous morning.
0: Let's backtrack to immediately after the plumber hit when Al fled to Oregon with his family. About eight months later, he returned to Boston and reached out to Howie Winter. Al told Howie that he wanted to meet Jerry and Julia to bury the hatchet. Howie reached out to Jerry and the meeting was arranged. Al was told he had to make restitution for the damage he'd done. Howie and Johnny picked up Al at the Northgate Shopping Center in Revere. Al was carrying a bag stuffed with $50,000. From there, they drove to the North End for a meeting with Jerry at the Cafe Pompeii on Hanover Street. Jerry was seated in the back of the cafe. All of the tables around him were empty in order to prevent anyone from overhearing his conversations. He should have been that cautious everywhere. (laughs) Especially after the wiretap disclosure, but he must have believed that lightning couldn't strike twice.
1: Well, that was a mistake. It was also a mistake to trust a flemmy. but Jerry kept doing that too. <laughs> Well, anyhow, Al began apologizing to Angelo and handed him the bag with the $50,000 in it. In classic Jerry style, he went on a tirade, berating and chastising Al for his misdeeds. He directed Al never to contact him again and to only go through Howie from that point on. Johnny and Howie drove Al back to Revere and they returned to the North End to meet Jerry, who gave them $25,000 to finish off Al, for killing Pauly Felino and told them not to fuck up a fourth time. I have to interrupt myself here. Why would you trust these guys to do the job a fourth time? <laughs>
0: Glutton for punishment. In the meantime, Al reached out to Sal Sperlinga to try and arrange a second meet with Jerry. If you're asking why, we don't know. One version of event is Maturano's. He claimed that he and Sal drove to pick up Al. In Stevie Flemmy's version of events, he said Howie Winter was with Johnny, but Stevie was technically still on the lam when all of this took place and wouldn't surrender himself to the authorities until May 6th. Pathological
1: liars. No kidding. Back to Al's demise. The driver, Sal or Howie, pilled up. Johnny got out of the front seat, let Al sit in the front, and Johnny sat behind Al.
0: The death seat. I'm sorry, but if you're
1: on shaky ground, would you get in the front seat with anyone sitting behind you? I wouldn't be getting in the car at all, but I think the lesson in all of these stories is the same. Hubris will ruin you every time.
0: Well, the downfall in every Greek tragedy. With Johnny comfortably tucked in the back seat, he shot Al twice in the head. They drove back to Marshall Motors, robbed Al of any valuables he had, wrapped him in a blanket, and put him in the trunk of a stolen car. They drove to the Bunker Hill housing projects in Charlestown and abandoned the vehicle. Shortly after, two two teenagers spotted the popped ignition and took the car for a jury ride with Al still in the trunk. Not long after, they were stopped by the Boston PD. The cops spotted the broken trunk, pried it open, and there was Al.
1: It would be over two and a half decades until Stevie and Johnny would tell their versions of events. Like their brethren, their stories have to be taken with skepticism and a grain of salt.
0: I like how you put versions. And speaking of liars, next week, Joe Barboza will be the topic of discussion. Along with the lying authorities who protected him, we'll be covering him from his testimony after the Deegan trial up until his slaying. So I hope you guys join us. Bye. Bye.